Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship, ready to study the word. I would encourage you to remember to keep uh, Jim Myers in your prayers. He's in Africa now. He was supposed to have gone two or three weeks ago. and He was under the gun trying to get all of his things uh, done, notes printed out. He was going to Africa teaching two different conferences in Zambia, and he needed to get everything printed in little notebooks ready to go to take with him. And he was having me pray that he would be able to get everything done in time. And I called him up last week, found out he had not gone yet. And I said, well, it's the last time I'm praying for you. That volcano went off and it messed up everybody's schedule, but you had enough time to get your notes done. So he was supposed to have left on Saturday to go to Zambia. He'll be there for for two weeks, and as he says, he goes about 200 miles past the last uh, electric plug. So pray, pray for him. All right, let's uh, let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we can come together this evening to study your word. We're thankful that uh, your word informs us, enlightens us as to who you are. It helps us to understand creation as you have made it, and it enables us to understand how. Uh, you are able to save us, and it informs us about our spiritual life. Father, we're thankful for the ministry that you've given this church. We pray that you would just continue to uh, provide for us. And, Father, we also pray for Jim as he's in Africa and the challenges he may be facing there. We pray you'd keep him safe, keep him healthy, and that he would have a very uh, profitable uh, ministry there. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are in our study in Hebrews, but uh, rather than turning there, because we'll just briefly touch that, go ahead and open your Bibles to Judges, chapter 13. Last time we only made it through the one judge, Jephthah, and this time we will, um, we will uh, go forward in the next one that's mentioned in our uh, passage there in Hebrews 11.32, which is uh, Samson. And just so you are reminded about the uh, passage that we're, that we're studying, Hebrews 11.32, we read, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak, Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel, and the prophets. And so he's, he's continuing and wrapping up his, his uh, lengthy session where he's been focusing on how each of these uh, 
each of these individuals through that he's been using in Hebrews chapter 11 uh, provide an illustration for those who have trusted God at key points, trusted in a promise. I always remind you, it's not just faith, because the Bible doesn't know faith in faith. That's, that's sort of a modern, new age, mystical concept that we just sort of have faith. And sometimes you'll hear people say that, well, just, just believe. Well, believe what? Uh, just believe anything? Well, we can't just believe anything. We believe what is in the Word of God. So it's always faith in something in God's Word. The second thing is that that second element, though, is always a part of faith, and that is the object of faith, what we believe. But the two go together. In, in, in a phrase like this, it is not just the act of trusting, but it is the whole act of trusting in a promise of God. And we see that when we come down to uh, the last two verses of the chapter, just sort of a preview of coming attraction, so you know where we're headed. As the writer summarizes, he says, "...in all of these, that is, all these individuals..." All of these having obtained a good testimony through faith. They had their faith in trusting God at some point in their life uh, provides an evidence, provides a witness in the uh, angelic conflict, both before man and before the angels. And all these having obtained a good testimony through faith did not receive the promise. See, that's the key phrase right there. This is what unpacks and helps us to properly interpret all of Hebrews 11. They didn't receive the promise. It's not talking about the fact that each of these individuals are uh, mature believers, are great and wonderful examples of of uh, spiritual maturity and great and wonderful examples of spiritual life. It is that they believed the promise. And what was the promise? The promise was related to, uh, generally speaking, the uh, deliverance of, of Messiah, but specifically, especially once it narrows down and focuses from Abraham on, it's that promise that God made to Abraham to give the land to Israel because all of the examples from verse 8 on, Abraham, Isaac, uh, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, and then uh, Joshua, Rahab, and then the, the four that are listed here, in um, uh, verse verse 32, are all that's the focus. They trusted in the promise and they didn't receive it. And what the writer is trying to do is he's talking to this group of Jewish believers who are about to just give up and throw it all away, go back into uh, first century Judaism, and give up on their belief in Jesus as the Messiah because nothing's happened. We haven't received the promise. He hasn't come back. He hasn't returned. I I thought he was going to return. So what the writer is illustrating is, see, they didn't receive the promise, yet they persevered. They endured, and uh, God has then provided something better for us. That's verse 40. So what has happened is that people have, have misunderstood in some way the what the writer of Hebrews is saying about these men. We tend to glorify this passage. It's the great uh, passage, the Hall of Faith passage in Hebrews, and that these are great mature believers. But when we go back and we start looking at some of them, and particularly some of those in verse 32, 
in the in their spiritual life and how they're described back in the book of Judges is that they weren't very mature believers. They were just a couple of steps uh, above being just rank pagans and, and basically thinking and operating just like, like Canaanites. But even though they are very paganized, worldly, in their in their thinking, nevertheless, they still had a, a basic understanding of the promise of God, and they trusted God in terms of that promise in a critical situation for the history of Israel in the Old Testament. And so we have to understand that in that uh, context. So uh, verse 32, for the time would t- fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak. We studied that. Samson and Jephthah, we have studied Jephthah. Uh, tonight we'll finish up with Samson, and then next week David and Samuel and the prophets. And when we um, get there, we'll have to paint with an even broader brush, brush stroke, and we'll be here forever. And then there's a summary of what these men did and others. The prophets just summarizes Isaac, I, excuse me, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah, uh, Haggai, Joel, all the way down through Malachi. Through faith, these individuals trusted God's promise for Israel, and they subdued kingdoms, they worked righteousness, they obtained promises, they stopped the mouths of lions, and then it goes on to read in verse 33, or verse 30, I guess I don't have verse 34 up there. Uh, Verse 34, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies uh, of the uh, aliens, women uh, received their dead raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. And so as you read through this list, they have different circumstances, different situations. But what undergirds all of it, that the basic promise that that is the foundation of all, is that promise that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the promise of the Abrahamic covenant, the promise that God would give the land to Israel and that he would bring a Messiah and that the Messiah would deliver the nation Israel and establish a kingdom. So that's what the writer of Hebrews is doing. So when he speaks of the fact that he will... Uh, that they, through faith, they subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. Starting with the last one first, we are reminded of how uh, God stopped the mouths of lions with Daniel. In Daniel 6.22, when Daniel was in the lion's den, he replied to the king when the king came the next morning and said that God had sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth. And then we also have the example moving backward in history of David that when David came to uh, King Saul, offering his services to go uh, to battle against Goliath, Saul said, well, you're just a kid. What qualifies you to go fight this, this, this giant, Goliath? And David said, uh, well, here's my resume. Verse 34, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came, and so he phrases this in, in the circumstance that whenever this happened, because that was part of his job as a shepherd, was to protect the sheep. And so there would be uh, various uh, 
animals, various marauding animals that would come to try to uh, destroy the sheep. And they were, they were lions and bears that would come. And so David then describes what he did. Now, he's trusting the Lord to protect him in the midst of that. And, and there's an application here for your job that no matter what you're facing in your job, whatever those obstacles may be, whether they are intellectual or physical, that God is the one who gives us victory in those battles. And David said, well, whenever a lion or a bear would come, I went out after it and struck it. Now, remember, all he has is a slingshot and a staff. He doesn't have a sword. He doesn't have uh, an Uzi. He doesn't have any modern weaponry. He has just those two things, just a and, and, a, and a short club. And he would go out, and he said, whenever this would happen, I would go out and... Uh, strike it and deliver. Literally, it's, he would pull the lamb out of the lion's mouth. Now, I don't know about you, but I've tried to get things out of a dog's mouth before, and that's not a real pleasant thing. But to try to take a lamb out of a lion's mouth indicates that you have a tremendous amount of uh, physical skill and ability and that you've got a lot of courage and trust in the Lord. And so he would deliver the lamb from its mouth, and when it rose against me, I would catch it by its beard. Can you just imagine that, just grabbing that lion by its beard beard with one hand and a club with the other hand, and you kill the lion? Well, that's what David did on more than one occasion. Uh, I would catch it by its beard and strike it and kill it. Uh, So your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be just like one of, one of them. So he had quite a resume. And by the time he was 17 or 18 years old, he was, uh, he was fairly uh, tough, and he had a lot of confidence in his ability. Now, the other person that killed a lion uh, is, is uh, Samson. And I want you to turn, and we'll look over Samson's career uh, tonight. That's covered in uh, Judges chapters 13, 14, 15 and 16. And Samson is one of those individuals, and the story of Samson is one that is often told. I remember when uh, my mother had a copy of Hurlbut Stories of the Bible. Some of you may remember that. That was a great uh, publication of Bible stories to be read to children um, that was in print for, for many years. And she would read that, and you read some of these stories, and accurate as they are, the emphasis is always on the fact that these men were just what, what tremendous spiritual heroes they were. But that's not really what, what the writer of Judges is pointing out. In fact, he really doesn't point out that Samuel is that great of a hero. He really points out that Samuel is pretty much of a loser, that Samuel is a complete failure. And what's important is to read the context of the book of Judges and you see this negative trajectory among these great leaders so that at the beginning of the story, when uh, the Israelites are confronting uh, 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 an armed uh, Canaanite uh, defense, then God would raise up a judge like Othniel, and Othniel had a godly wife named uh, Oxa. And they would, and, and Othniel gives complete victory and, and raises up his, his, his men and they go out into battle and they destroy the enemy forces. And the, uh, the judge is the hero. The judge is the great deliverer. The judge is the good guy. And by the time you get down to the end of the book of Judges, it's, the story's not about the battle. 
The story doesn't focus on the Lord's deliverance. There's no battle. There's no deliverance. The focal point is all about Samson and his sins. And the writer is, just goes through one personal episode after another. Samson, as a judge, never calls up an army. He never goes to battle against the Philistines. He's too concerned with chasing the daughters of the Philistines than to go to battle against the Philistines. And the only time he does anything bad to the Philistines is when they get in the way of his chasing their daughters and they start laying traps for him and it becomes a matter of a personal vendetta that God uses, of course, to stir up the antagonism with, with the Pharisees, but it is not a man who is trusting in God at those points to give him, uh, to give him the victory. So the focus shifts from being, uh, from the judge being the good guy and the deliverer with Samson. Samson is really the problem. The, the deliverer, deliverer has become the problem because he is carnal, he's self-absorbed, and he has no self-restraint, and he is just in, in love with his own uh, lust pattern. So the judge has deteriorated, and the life and the value system of, of the judge now is no different from that of the Canaanites. If you look at Samson, he, he really isn't any different from any of the Canaanites, and that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Remember, the theme of Judge, uh, excuse me, the writer of Judges is saying, the the book of Judges is written to demonstrate the point that there was no king in the land. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone, leaders did what was right in their own eyes, and you have these uh, four or five key examples showing the deterioration as time went by, and they became more uh, relativistic. How. Um, there were more and more problems, and then you come to uh, chapters 17 and 18 and, and 19, and it just uh, it, it depicts the the apostasy of the priesthood and the apostasy of the people, and just how how depraved they become and how degraded they become, and they just don't seem to live any differently from the um, from, from the Jews aren't God's people called to be a separate, distinct nation, called to be a nation of priests are not living any differently from the Canaanites. They're supposedly removing from the land under God's judgment because of of the fact that they are so uh, depraved and so perverse. And so we come to the the opening part of this this chapter, and we're told in verse 1, Again, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. There's no again in the Hebrew. It really should read more like uh, the children of Israel continued to do evil in the sight of the Lord. And remember, evil in the prophets, um, whether you're talking about the major prophets later on or these historical books, evil is rebellion or apostasy against God. It is, it is idolatry. That is, it's not just that they committed this sin or that sin or this other sin. They're, they are committing rebellion or treason against God by worshiping and going after uh, false gods and false religions, and they are adopting a completely false set of beliefs, a completely false worldview that they want to run their, their, their lives by. And so we see that there is a, a connection between what's going on in Israel's history as the nation and Samson. There are certain par- parallels. And so I want to point out to you about eight 
nine parallels, eight parallels, one. Eight parallels. First of all, the nation Israel, the Israelite people, came into existence through a uh, miraculous act of God as God brought Isaac, the child of promise, into, into life through the dead womb of Sarah and, uh, and Abraham because they were beyond the age of having children. In the same way, Samson's birth is a miracle. His mother, like uh, the matriarchs of Israel, like Sarah and uh, Rebecca and Rachel, was barren, and she could not have any children. And so God gives her a child. And so there's a miraculous birth there. The nation is, is born through a miracle, and Samson is born through a miracle. Secondly, Samson is called to a distinct life of separation uh, and service to God. He's called to a distinct life of separation and service to God, which is indicated by the Nazarite vow that uh, is imposed on him from uh, the time that he is is in the womb on through his entire life, and he is uh, to and uh, uh, Samson's call to this high life of separation to and service to God, just as the nation was called to be a kingdom of priests, and they are the viewed nationally as a, the uh, adopted son of Yahweh. Uh, third, we see that. Uh, that uh, Samson is self-centered, self-absorbed. He's more concerned with his own problems and uh, feeding his own lust patterns. And the Israelites are just as self-centered and self-absorbed and focused on feeding their own uh, lust patterns. And this is what you see in the um, um, in the situation when they're coming out of Egypt and they leave Egypt and they, uh, after a few uh, tough times in the wilderness. They start uh, wanting to go back to Egypt, want to go back to slavery, and they wanted the leeks and the garlics of Egypt. And they complained bitterly against Moses and against God. So they, they are, just as the nation is self-absorbed, so Samson self-absorbed. Fourth, uh, Samson is, uh, is drawn and attracted and lusts after foreign women, and the nation lusts after foreign gods. Samson lusts after foreign women, and the nation lusts after foreign gods. So they are both unfaithful. They are both uh, committing uh, fornication, uh, adultery, in terms of immorality and unfaithfulness um, toward God in both aspects. Uh, fifth, Samson uh, experiences the uh, being imprisoned and attacked and oppressed by the enemy just as the nation experienced being being attacked and uh, under the uh, oppression of a foreign enemy. Uh, during the, that time uh, that they're under oppression, Israel will cry out to God for deliverance, and Samson, uh, there at the end of his life, will cry out for uh, Yahweh to deliver him. Uh, Samson is blinded by his enemies, just as the nation is spiritually blind in their rebellion against God. And then um, at the end, when his hair is cut, uh, that's really a sign that God has now abandoned him and no longer empowers him, and he doesn't uh, 
He doesn't know it. He is, he is functionally uh, dead. He doesn't know what has happened. And the same way the nation, when they get to that point, uh, when they are at this point, they don't realize that God has departed from them. They still think that somehow they're special just by their physical connection to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So that, that sets the pattern. Samson is, in, as an individual, just the product of his culture, looks just like everybody else in Israel, and is... Uh, just more concerned about his own uh, lust patterns than serving the Lord. Now, when we get to um, when we get into chapter thirteen, here we see the, the the birth, how God, in His grace, provides a deliver. But there's one thing that we don't see here. We don't see Israel crying for deliverance. We've seen that in other times, in, in the oppression at the beginning when God provided Othniel, then later the oppression from the Midianites or uh, uh, the Moabites when God provided uh, Ehud, and then the uh, oppression from the uh, Canaanites, from uh, uh, Hatzor, the king of Hatzor, and God provided the deliverance through Deborah and Barak, and then later the Midianites, and God, they cried out from their oppression for a deliverer, and God sent them uh, Gideon. And But now we come to Samson and the oppression from the Philistines, and there's one thing missing at the beginning of chapter 13. There's no cry for a deliverer. There's nothing. The, the Israelites have just accepted it. This has become normal. They're not crying out for a deliverer. They're not turning to God. They have decided to to uh, assimilate with the enemy. But God's not going to let them. And that's basically the role of Samson is he is a wild bull in a china closet, and it's going to prevent the Israelites from just calmly and peacefully uh, intermarrying with the Philistines and losing their whole uh, physical and spiritual identity. And so God is going to provide a deliverer. The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. And then verse 2, now there was a certain man of Zorah of the family of the Danites. So this is the tribe of Dan, which had an area in the central uh, part of Israel, the central uh, western part called the Shephelah, the kind of... Uh, uh, has it's sort of like a backward L. The upper part is along the coast. Let me see. I have a map here. I think I can use if I can uh, figure out where. There's my cursor. Here we go. The Shafela area comes down along the coastline here, and then sort of makes a a hook to the right where you see the name of Dan there and comes along here uh, along this uh, uh, central area. This is pretty much the same. This area right up here is about where Tel Aviv is today, and this follows the, the area along where the main highway runs from Tel Aviv over to uh, Jerusalem today. And so uh, that highway runs just a little bit north of this this particular area. And then this area here, of course, you have... Uh, well-known names such as Gaza, uh, Ekron, Gath. Uh, this area here is, is much of the uh, disputed area now in the Gaza Strip. So that's the area where 
uh, Samson grows up, where he lives, where uh, all of these events take place. And this is territory that Dan never fully conquered. In fact, we're told uh, later in the next chapter that because of the fact that they never really uh, controlled this territory, that they basically gave up, sent out some scouts to go find some better place where they could go, where they could find an easier enemy to defeat. And that's when they went up to the far north and found Laish and uh, said, oh, yeah, we can we can conquer them. Those people ha- don't have any fortifications, and they're not very strong. And so they migrated to the northern uh, part of uh, Israel and ca- captured uh, the, the Canaanite city of Laish, and they established the city of Dan. So they basically went north. So this is not a tribe that has a reputation for being um, very spiritually strong. And so the... Um, there's this man Zora, uh, a man from Zora rather, and his name's Manoah. His wife is barren, no children, and the angel of the Lord appears to him. It strikes us as being something similar to uh, the Lord appearing to Abraham and Sarah, and later on, in the um, with the angel Gabriel appearing to Mary, the mother of the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the angel appears to the woman and says well, that you're announces to her that indeed you are barren, you've borne no children, but you will conceive and bear a son. Notice she's addressing the woman. She doesn't come to the man. She says, now therefore, and this is where she gives the instructions, be careful not to drink wine or similar drink and not to eat anything unclean. Uh, For behold, you shall... Is there a problem with my microphone? Something keeps making a noise. Okay. Be careful not to drink wine or similar drink, not to eat anything unclean, for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. Now, uh, this this is so strict that in his uh, physical development uh, in the womb, she should not even have any uh, wine or grape juice. And this is all related to the Nazarite vow. Now, the, uh, this was a vow that would separate or distinguish an individual as being uh, specifically dedicated to serving God. And the stipulations for the Nazarite vow are given in Numbers 6, uh, 2, and following. Now, it's important to note these characteristics because when we get into studying uh, the life of Sam- uh, Samson, he violates all of these. He doesn't keep any of them. Uh, verse 2 of uh, Numbers chapter 6, verses 2 and following, we read, uh, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when, when either a man or woman consecrates an offering to take the vow of a Nazarite to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and similar drink. Now, notice it is a voluntary vow, but in the case of Samson, it wasn't. It is imposed from God uh, by God from the outside, because it, it, he is going to try to teach something through Samson, which, of course, doesn't happen. Uh, and what he's illustrating is that just as as Samson was to live separate to, unto God, so the Israelites were, but they don't. The first stipulation is they're not. he's not supposed to drink any wine or similar drink. 
So he's not to have any alcoholic beverage. Now, this was a distinct class of individual who took this voluntary vow in the Old Testament. It is not an indication that there is somehow something wrong with wine or with alcoholic beverages. Of course, at that time, you only had two kinds of alcoholic beverages. You had what the Bible translates as wine and what it translates as strong drink. Now, strong drink wasn't scotch or vodka or bourbon or anything like that because those are distilled beverages, and we don't believe they had the ability to distill uh, alcohol at that time in history. Strong drink, the Hebrew word, refers to a barley beer. And so the strong drink offering that you read about in the Old Testament was a was the was not wine, but it was barley beer that was brought as a as an offering to God. So the Nazarite was to be completely separated, no wine, neither shall he drink vinegar made from wine, nor vinegar made from similar drinks. So that's what happens with the vinegar is that the 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 wine goes sour and then that produces vinegar. But he's he's not to have anything to do with the vine. He can't even touch a grape, it goes on to say. Neither shall he drink any grape juice. So he doesn't just have to do with the alcoholic part. He can't even have grape juice. No welches, nothing else, uh, nor eat fresh grapes or raisins. No raisin bran. He can't t- even touch a grapevine. All of the days of his separation, he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine from seed to skin. He can't touch it. Can't go near it. Not go, he can't go to a vineyard. All the days of his vow, the passage goes on to say, if all the days of the vow of his separation, no razor shall come on his head. So, first of all, nothing to do with grapes. Secondly, he can't shave his hair, shave his beard, until the days are fulfilled for which he has separated himself to the Lord, for he shall be holy, that is, set apart to the service of God. Then he shall let the locks of his, the head of his hair grow. Verse 6, all the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body. That's the third thing. He can't touch a carcass, a dead body of any kind. And then uh, verse 7, he shall not make himself unclean, even for his father or his mother, for his brother or his sister when they die, because his separation of God is on his head. So he's not even to, when they die, he can't go near the, the, the dead body. So this is the vow that is set up uh, because he is going to be set apart to deliver Israel from the, from the uh, Philistines. And so uh, the angel of the Lord appears to uh, the mother, tells her, then she goes back and tells her husband, and then uh, Manoah prays to the Lord to have the man of God, the angel of the Lord, come back to confirm this, and which is what happens, and that f- fills out pretty much the events in the in the first first uh, first chapter, and they discover that indeed the angel of the Lord is actually God. Now, verse fourteen, then our chapter fourteen begins to tell us about Samson and his character, and it begins with his first girlfriend. Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. So he's really going where he's not supposed to go. And while he, and he goes to Timnah. Now Timnah is located right here. All of these lines indicate various movements that take place uh, during this period, but I've 
zeroed in on the center part of the slide, so we're not really going to pay attention to that. I just want you to see where these things take place. Timnah is just uh, due uh, west of Jerusalem. And you have Timnah here and Zorah here. That's another uh, Beth Shemesh. This is where the Ark of the Covenant returns uh, later on in uh, Second Sam- I mean, First Samuel. Uh, here is Gath here, Ekron, these are, and Eshkelon, and Gaza down here. These are the five cities of the Philistines, Gath, Ekron, Ashdod, Ashkelon, and Gaza. So he goes to Timnah, which is clearly Philistine territory at this point, and he is checking out uh, the young women in, uh, in Timnah. And he goes back home, and you see the arrogance that he has. And his, his total lack of respect for his parents, his total lack of authority orientation, he comes home and he says, Dad, I saw this woman down in Timnah, and I want to marry her, you make it happen. I mean, he's not asking, is this a good idea? And this is in direct violation of Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3. Deuteronomy 7, 3 prohibits the intermarriage of Israelites with The Canaanites, completely. They are not to intermarry at all. They are to be separate and distinct because God understands that once a man brings a pagan woman into the house, that he is going to want to please her, and before long he will compromise all of his beliefs in order to have peace in the home. That's what happened with Solomon later on in his foreign wives, and it happens down through the ages. This is why even in the New Testament there is a uh, mandate that believers are not to intermarry with unbelievers because it, they, that it will destroy your spiritual life. And I always tell parents, you have to start drilling into your kids from the time they are old enough to understand that the worst thing they'll ever do, the most, the easiest way to mess up their life is to get involved in missionary dating and think that they'll go out on a date with some uh, good-looking girl and somehow uh, convince her to be saved. And I have seen this working both ways where you have uh, girls go out with guys, guys go out with girls, and, and they, they give them the gospel. There are a few exceptions, but uh, m- uh, most of the time what I see is sort of a, um, in the heat and the passion of courtship, there is a desire to please the other person, so yes, I'll go to church, and this is fine. And then as soon as uh, they get married within the first month, the husband or the wife decides, you know, I'm really not that excited about that church, and I'm just not going to go anymore. And then you have a problem. I can't tell you how many times I've seen that in different churches that I have been in and, and uh, different situations. And then 10, 15 years later, uh, you have one of them coming to you as a pastor saying, how in the world do I, what do I do now? I'm miserable. My kids are miserable. My wife is miserable. What do I do? Well, it's too late to go back to obey Scripture. But that is your fundamental flaw is you weren't careful about who you, uh, who you went out with. Now, just because you go out with a believer doesn't mean it's going to all work out either. But um, you're really, because if you go out and get married to a carnal believer, it can be uh, equally as bad. But he clearly is in violation of the law, has no disregard for God, has no regard rather, no regard at all for God or his word, and he just wants to fulfill his own uh, lust. 
So his, his, and his parents have no backbone. And that's why he's become so uh, spoiled is because they have never disciplined him in all of the days that he has been uh, growing up. And so his father says, well, why don't you marry a good Jewish girl and, and stay at home? And he gets nowhere. Samson says, get her for me. She pleases me. And you can just tell, hear him ordering his dad to go down to this woman. But we're told what God's doing behind the scenes. Now, that doesn't mean he's right. It just shows that even when we're doing wrong things, God is able to, what does it say in Romans 8, 28? For we know God works all things together for good. He's working behind the scenes to accomplish his purposes. And his purpose with Samuel is to keep everything stirred up. He, he, that people haven't turned back to God. They haven't called for a deliverer. But God knows that if he doesn't keep uh, everything in a state of chaos, that the people all settle down in peace and intermarry with the Philistines and they'll lose their national identity and, and become even more paganized. So uh, God is at work in all of this So it, it will cr- because it will create a controversy and a uh, conflict with the Philistines. So he goes down, to, Samson goes down to Timnah with his father and mother. And notice verse 5. What is the key phrase in verse 5? So Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother and came to the what? Came to the vineyards of Timnah. See, he's not supposed to be there. He's out there with the grapevines. And so he's breaching his Nazarite vow again. Now, to his surprise, a young lion came roaring against him. So he's attacked by a young lion. In verse 6 we read, And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and he became spiritually mature. Oh, no, it doesn't say that, does it? No. See, the role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament didn't have anything to do with the spiritual life. It had to do with in, enabling the leaders of Israel to accomplish the task that God gave them. So the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and he tore the lion apart as one would have torn apart a young goat. Now, I don't know. I'd probably have a tough time even tearing apart a young goat, but that's that's uh, that's the metaphor that it would easily be... Uh, torn up and destroyed, but he didn't tell his father or his mother what he had done. Oh, so there's an element of secrecy. He's where he shouldn't be doing what he shouldn't be doing in the vineyard, and so well, I'm not going to tell, my, tell them, and he kills, kills the lion. And he goes down, he talks with the woman, and he's real happy with her, and after some time he returned to get her. Uh, when he returned to get her, uh, he turned aside to see the carcass. wonder what happened with that lion. Now, what's normally going to happen? Most of you have driven along enough Texas highways in your life and seen enough uh, bloated, dead animals on the side of the road to realize that a dead animal, uh, when an an animal or human being dies, that their body produces certain gases that eventually are released and that, that a carcass is pretty much a moist environment. I don't want to get too gross for some of you. It wasn't that long ago that you had dinner. But it is not a dry environment. And bees don't like wet environments. They don't make honeycombs in a dry environment. So there's something that, that there's something that God is doing here because this carcass has hardened. 
rather than the normal process of deterioration and turning into just a, a gooey mass before it all deteriorates, so it's sort of hardened. And now the bees come in, and they have created a hive there in honey. So enough time's gone by to where this is a nice environment for them, and there, there's honey in the carcass of the lion. And so he goes there, and verse 9, he took some of it in his hands and went along eating. Now, I would suggest that if he got the honey out of the carcass the, of the animal that, that he got pretty close to touching the animal. I can't imagine that he would be able to pull the honey out without touching the carcass. So he violates the Nazarite vow again. And he has, uh, he takes it with him and he goes to see the father-in-law, but he doesn't tell anybody what he's done or where he's gotten the honey. And uh, arranges at the end of the chapter, there's the arrangement of the marriage. His father goes to the woman. Samson has a wedding feast there, which was the normative thing for them to do. And so when they saw him, these Philistines brought 30 companions uh, to be with them. And so he's going to pose uh, a riddle for them. And he says, uh, if it, let me pose a riddle to you. If you can correctly solve and explain it to me within the seven days of the feast, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. We'll go down to the gallery and go to uh, Neiman's, and I'm going to, this is the finest garments of the time. So we'll get you uh, 30 changes of clothes. But if you can't explain it to me, then you shall give me 30, 30 linen garments. So he thinks he's got them beat, and he's got a sure thing here. Never bet on a sure thing. And they said to him, well, you pose the riddle. So he did. Out of the eater came something to eat, the lion being the eater, and out of the strong, that is the lion, came something sweet. For three days they couldn't explain the riddle. And then they uh, come along and they use the intimidation ploy on his bride-to-be. And they put the pressure on her to uh, entice him to explain the, the riddle and that if she doesn't do this, then they um, then they will uh, threaten the family, burn his ha- burn the house. So they are just intimidating and having a little protection racket uh, going on here. But so Samson's wife begins to weep and to cry, and most men can't put, can't handle a crying woman very well. And so he gives in and he explains the riddle, and then she goes and gives it to them, and they answer the riddle. And he gets uh, very angry, and he recognizes that if they had not um, worked worked her, then they wouldn't have solved the riddle. And then verse 19, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, and he went down to Ashkelon and killed 30 of their men and took their apparel and gave the changes of clothing to those who had explained the riddle. So his anger was aroused. This isn't the work of the Holy Spirit here. His anger is aroused. It's purely selfish motivation. And he goes back to his father's house. And then uh, Samson's wife is given to uh, another person to marry. So after a while, when the wheat harvest came, Samson decided, oh, I'm going to go find my wife, um, uh, see if I can uh, patch things up. And he goes back and finds that she's been given to somebody else. And so now he's going to take revenge against the Philistines. And in verse 4 of chapter 15, we read, that Samson went and he caught 300 foxes. Now, this has really always intrigued me. Uh, how did he catch the 300 foxes? That's a lot of foxes. That's, that's, that's a lot of work. Takes some time. And um, 
Obviously, he's empowered by the Holy Spirit to accomplish this physical task. And then he tied their tails together. Now, that's another. I don't know if you've ever handled a wild fox, but they really don't like you messing with them very much, much less tying their tails together and then sticking a torch between their tails. And then he would he released them into the into the what? Into the vineyard. Notice the end of uh, verse 5. He says that he released them and they burned up both the shocks and the standing grain as well as the vineyards and the olive groves. So once again, he's in a place where he's not supposed to be, in a vineyard, where he can come in contact with grapes and grapevines and um, everything else. But God is using him to continue to stir up the trouble uh, with the uh, with the Philistines. And then we have the episode where, um, if you just skip down a few more verses, down to verse 11, as they have this now battles scenes developing between the men of Judah and the Philistines, we're told in verse 11, then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of, of, Elam, of Edom and said to Samson, Don't you know that the Philistines rule over us? What is this you have done to us? You're just making it a lot worse. See, they've, their mentality is they've already gone over to the enemy. They have just completely caved in to the pressure of the enemy, and they no longer want to maintain a distinct identity. And uh, so he explains what he has done because uh, they, what they did to me, he's saying I was perfectly justified in doing what they did. And so they say, we have come down to arrest you that, you may de- that we may deliver you into the hands of the Philistines. And so he makes them swear not to kill him but to protect him. And they take him to the Philistines. And when he comes, he uh, finds a fresh jawbone of a donkey. Now, is the donkey alive or dead? It's dead. So he's messing with another carcass again. He's in violation of the Nazarite vow. Have you gotten a suggestion anywhere yet that he's prayed to God, asked God's guidance, cares a little bit about God? Not at all. He is just concerned about uh, satiating his own lust and his own anger. And so he goes and he kills a thousand Philistines with this uh, jawbone. And God, in his grace, provides for him. He gets very thirsty after after all this fighting, and God splits the hollow place, and Lehi water comes out, and so God is taking care of him because even though he's in carnality, even though he's in rebellion, God is still using him to bring about his task. See, God can still use us to do what God wants us to do, either in spite of us or with our cooperation. We just miss out on the blessing and the spiritual value if God has to use us in a state of carnality. And then chapter 16 tells the story that we're mostly familiar with, which is when he goes to Gaza and goes to a prostitute there. Um, and uh, then uh, he, so that's his second woman that he's involved with. And then he, after that episode, he goes down and he has an affair with, falls in love with Delilah who is the, the third woman. And we know the story about how Delilah gets, uh, comes under pressure from the Philistines, uh, and she is going to uh, finally put the pressure on him and convince him that, uh, that to tell her what the secret to his strength is, 
And so she cuts off all of his hair, and uh, this is when God leaves him, and she betrays him to the Philistines. And in verse 21, we read, Then the Philistines took him and put out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza, so all the way down to the coast. Uh, he's as far, just about as far away as he could get in the Philistine territory from home. Brought him down to Gaza, and they bound him with bronze fetters, and he became uh, a grinder or a worker in the, in the prison. However, the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaven. Now, this doesn't mean that, that there's something magical about the hair. It is simply that, that as his hair begins to grow, and while it's growing, he has some time to reflect upon what his divine mission was and what his uh, Nazarite vow was all about. And this is where you see uh, Samson, although the text doesn't bring it out, where you see Samson beginning to uh, refocus on God's mission for him. And so the people have this huge party, and they have a great sacrifice to Dagon. And um, and they want Samson brought out so that they can gloat and so that they can uh, torture him and ridicule him. And so in verse 25, we're told that they say, Call for Samson that he may perform for us. So they called for Samson from, from the prison, and he performed for them. And they stationed him between the pillars. And it's at this point that Samson, who's blind, remember, says to the lad who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars which support the temple so that I can lean on them. Now we're told in an aside in verse 7, Now the temple was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, about 3,000 men and women on the roof watching while Samson performed. So it's a full house, standing room only, and the roof is fully occupied, the original nosebleed section. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, remember me, I pray. And at this point, he calls upon him the right name, Lord God, emphasizing the covenant relationship that God had with with Israel. O Lord God, remember me, I pray. Strengthen me, I pray, just this once, O God, that I may with one blow take vengeance on the Philistines for my two eyes. See, what's he concerned about? Is he concerned about the glory of God? Is he concerned about delivering Israel, protecting him? No, he's just concerned. These these guys poked out my eyes, and just give me strength one more time so I can have my vengeance because they poked out my eyes. He's still self-absorbed. Just like Israel is still, when Samson dies here, Israel is still under the oppression of the Philistines. They don't become delivered from the Philistines until David comes along. So they're still under the oppression of the Philistines. He hasn't completed the task, but God in his grace still provides him strength because God's plan is to keep the trouble going between the Philistines and the Israelites, and he's not answering the prayer because uh, Samson is now in fellowship and Samson has now got everything figured out. He answers Samson's prayer because it fits his plan to do so. So he gives strength to Samson, and he takes the two middle pillars which supported the temple and braced himself against them and then pushed them down, and the whole temple and all the people on top of it all collapsed. And so we're told, so the dead that he killed at his death were more than he'd killed in his life. But he never raises an army. 
He never delivers the people from the Philistines. He never goes into uh, any of his conflicts with the Philistines in the name of the Lord. He never shows any understanding uh, about uh, the Lord and his plan except for his prayer. Now, when we're young, immature believers, we prayed a lot of things that were wrong, but we were basically focused on the right thing in some sense. We prayed selfish prayers and other things of that nature. And so this is that one little time when Samson gets it right. Now, does that mean it was 100% right? No. But he, he gets it basically right, and he trusts God to be the one, and he knows that God is the one who gives him the power to defeat the Philistines. And so that is what that that takes place, and that closes things out. Now, what you don't know, because unless you do all the chronology work, is that there's another deliverer that was born about ten years after Samson, and his name's Samuel. And Samuel, by this time, is beginning to serve in the temple of God in uh, uh, up in Judea, up in the uh, the hill country, where the tabernacle, rather not the temple, but the tabernacle, was uh, was being stored. And he is serving under the high priest of Levi. And it is through Samuel, who will anoint David, that that ultimate deliverance will come. But the people aren't ready to be delivered yet. And so there, there's no deliverance. The people are still in, in carnality, and they end in the book of Judges. They end in um, um, carnality. They end in a disobedience to God. They're still under the oppression of the Philistines, and yet God, at the same time that he's stirring up all this trouble with Samson, is stirring up or bringing about the ultimate deliverance, which is going to be through Samuel. And we'll come back next time and look at uh, the last pair in uh, Hebrews 11.32, which focuses on Samuel and David. And it is through Samuel and David that God delivers the nation from uh, the oppression of the, of the Philistines. And I've always thought, I taught Samuel years ago, and maybe one day I'll go back in another 10 years or so and reteach First and Second Samuel. But I always thought it ought to be called the gospel according to Samuel because it starts off with the people in prison under the, the, uh, under the tyranny of the Philistines and spiritually incapable, spiritually impotent, and yet at the end of Samuel they're in their golden age under David and Solomon, and it comes through the... Uh, the kingship of David, which is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it foreshadows the basic principle we see all the way through through Scripture that if man is left to his own resources, he just destroys everything because of sin. And it's only by complete dependence upon God that we are delivered from the oppression of sin, slavery to sin, and it is only through the Lord Jesus Christ that we have uh, real happiness and that we have any real hope. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to, again, study through these Old Testament uh, individuals and to see how they were used by you in the Old Testament, the times in which they trusted you, for that encourages us to stand firm and to continue to uh, endure and to continue to obey, not to give up, because even though 
Uh, we haven't yet seen the promise fulfilled. They haven't seen the promise fulfilled. But we look forward to the future uh, full redemption that will come when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. And, Father, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.